The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Before we get started, let's make sure we're in fellowship. Have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure we're filled with the Spirit, ready to study God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to study your word, the freedom that we have in this nation, to gather together, to freely teach, and to learn your word, and to obey you. We pray for our leaders, for our president, for our members of Congress, for military leaders, that you would give them wisdom and courage during this time to uh, clearly identify the enemy and execute their plans and to maintain a consistency in their policies. Father, we pray, too, for our enemies, that you would confound and confuse them and that we might be able to defeat them and prevent them from uh, creating uh, havoc and even more harm in this nation. Father, we pray for us this morning as we study your word, recognizing that the greater battle is ours, and that is to live the spiritual life, that we are indeed involved in a warfare that involves the entire cosmic system of which Satan is the head, and the basic battle is over our own spiritual life that we are spiritual warriors and we are uh, commanded to put on the full armor of God and to stand in it and to avoid being taken uh, captive by the false systems of thinking that operate in Satan's cosmic system. We pray that you can will help us to understand these things and see how they relate as we study this Passage in 1 John 3, we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, as I have said the last two weeks that we have been in 1 John 3, this is a difficult passage. It is a complex passage, and if you look at it as it is translated in most English versions, it is very easy to come up with the wrong interpretation. Uh, even when you're sitting in front of a Greek text, it's not necessarily easy to come up with the correct interpretation there either. Sometimes we get the idea, and some of you have gotten the idea perhaps as you've listened to me teach, listened to others teach, that gosh, if I just knew the Greek or the Hebrew, then that would solve all the problems. One of the things that anybody with a good education in Greek or Hebrew learns about the middle of their second semester is no, it doesn't solve all the problems. In fact, it just generates a whole new realm of problems. It certainly makes some things more clear and helps you to understand reading the original, reading anything in the original language, whether it is reading Thomas Aquinas in the original Latin or whether it's reading uh, a document in the original French or German or whether it's reading scriptures in the original Greek or Hebrew, certainly gets you to a better starting point. Too often when you, we get into passages like 1 John 3 and English translations, the translator has already included certain things, has made certain choices how he translates, 
based on his own theological framework. If that theological framework is sound, that's one thing. If it's not sound, well, then you've got a problem. Furthermore, the other problem that you have with English translations is marketing. You wouldn't think that marketing would become an issue, but it does, especially in the last 30 or 40 years since the original publication of the Revised Standard Version in the early 50s because so many of the translators that were chosen for the Revised Standard Version were not conservative evangelicals. They made certain choices that uh, were not uh, choices that conservatives agreed with, and so the Revised Standard Version was rejected out of hand by the evangelical community, and that hurt their sales. For example, in Isaiah 7.14, instead of a virgin will conceive, they translate the Hebrew there, a young woman. And that has certain implications where technically, in some sense, that's a correct translation. When you look at how it's translated by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, you realize that the word that's used in the Hebrew in Isaiah 7.14 is a broader word and should have been, and, and does include a virgin, but also has other connotations, but by translating it in light of the later revelation of the New Testament, you have a clear clear idea of what it says. Anyway, I've been told by those who've been involved in different translation activities that sometimes publishers now uh, insist that certain things be translated the way they've always been translated simply because when there's a major break in, in the way some things are translated and it's not the traditional way, then... People don't buy their translation, so it comes down to dollars and cents. But as I pointed out last time, one of the problems in this passage, uh, aside from the just the, the basic problems of dealing with Johannine terminology, is that the translators have inserted the word uh, practice and inserted the word continues in places in the translation. And those words are not found in the original uh, Greek. And that uh, those words are inserted in order to try to avoid some of the uh, harsher realities of a literal interpretation here and uh, trying to somehow smooth things out, but ultimately it doesn't work. Let's uh, have a little review here before we wrap up this, this, this section this morning. First of all, I think it's important for us to go back and understand the basic framework we have to use to, to, uh, to teach this. This is a framework that we have built consistently looking at passages in Paul, passages in, that we studied on the spiritual life in Romans 6 through 8, passages we studied in the Upper Room Discourse in John chapter 13 through 17. So this isn't something that is just uh, the, the, the diagram that we're all familiar with, with the two circles describing the spiritual life, is not something that's just sort of imposed on the text, something that we use, but something that is a- actually developed originally from the text. And then it helps us to understand and to uh, have a, uh, a sort of a greater perception of what's being said in these more difficult passages. So we have the starting point at the cross where we're saved, and we have our eternal realities and temporal realities. Now, Paul uses a phrase, in Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, in 2 Corinthians 5.17. That phrase, in Christ, refers to our positional reality, that believers have a position in Christ. We're identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's in Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. 
because we're identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, his life is our life, his righteousness is our righteousness. Uh, we are adopted into the family of God, his sonship. Uh, we, we partake of his sonship. We are uh, heirs. We become heirs of God as he is an heir of God. All of these are our eternal realities that we have because of the identification with Christ called the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul's use of in Christ is different from John's use of the phrase in him. Now, it's easy to see why those two would get become confused. But to understand what John means in this passage, when he uses the phrase in him, we have to look at John's background. And John, for John, the background is the upper room discourse, specifically the uh, analogy of the vine that Jesus uses in John chapter 15. When Jesus was talking, he said that we should abide. He said, quote, you abide in me. If you abide in me and I in you, then you will bear much fruit. Now, when Jesus is talking and he uses the first person singular, in me, this is not something unusual for Jesus. He said, the Father abides in me and I in him. Well, that it can't be, as one writer said, uh, erroneously said, that abiding in him, the phrase in me when Jesus speaks, is a forensic term. Now, that gets into technical vocabulary. For theologians, forensic is the term that is always associated with justification and salvation. Problem is, Jesus doesn't need to be saved to be in, 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 in with the Father. When Jesus uses that phrase, in me, in, in John, it always talks about his intimate fellowship with God. For Paul, in Christ is that forensic term. It talks about what happens to us at salvation, uh, along with our justification with, 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 in Christ. So we're placed in Christ for Paul at the instant of salvation. But Jesus is talking about something else when he says, abide in me. He's talking about a more intimate, ongoing relationship. Now, if you or I are talking about what Jesus said as a third-person party, we would not say, I could not stand up here and say, abide in me, because you don't need to abide in me. I will have to say, quoting, you know, in reference to what Jesus said, we're to abide in him. Now, as soon as I say we're to abide in him or abide in Christ, I'm using a third-person term there, a third-person reference that sounds like Paul. But see, the original is, that I'm building that sentence on is from John 15, Jesus' statement, abide in me. Therein lies the point of confusion. When John talks about the fact that we are to abide in Christ, and this is the major command, starting back in 228, little children abide in him. Notice Paul, I mean John, never uses the phrase in Christ. He always uses the phrase in him. So we make this distinction between Paul's in Christ and John's in him. John's in him is related to abiding. It is abiding in him in 1 John 2:28. In 1 John, I mean 3 yeah, 2:28 in 1 John 3:6, it's whoever abides in him. In uh 1 John 3:14, it's the one who does not love his brother abides in death, whoever um and then in verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
and that the love of God is supposed to abide in in the believer in verse 17. He uses this word abiding, abiding, abiding again and again and again. And to understand what abiding means, we have to go back to John 15. Abiding is a relational term. If you take abiding as related to salvation, then you end up with some serious problems theologically. And this is why those who have taken 1 John, have taken abiding in 1 John to refer to salvation, end up with extreme difficulties because it looks like you're, many people who believe in Christ aren't really saved. It looks like if you're, if you're in Christ, if you're a believer, you can't sin or shouldn't sin, and if you do sin, you weren't really saved. They end up getting into a number of problems simply because you don't... Um, they have misunderstood this key term in John's theology. And they take abiding. If you take abiding as something related to salvation, then abiding becomes a term that is roughly synonymous with believing. Now, Jesus makes the statement, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, he also makes the statement, abide in me and I in you, Now, if you do a simple word substitution of faith for abide, where Jesus would say, you believe in me and I believe in you, that doesn't make sense. Or if you believe in my word and my word believes in you, well, his word can't believe in us. It becomes clear from doing simple word substitution that abide cannot be a term synonymous with belief because it doesn't work. It renders these other statements uh, somewhat uh, nonsensical. And I don't have time to go through the in-depth study I did on that, which we did back when uh, I covered John 15. But we have to take the conclusions from that study in John 15 and apply them here, that whoever uh, abides has to do with the ongoing relationship with Christ. This, we saw, is tantamount to the term that Paul uses in Galatians 5.16, walking by the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus says in John 15, the sole and necessary condition to produce fruit is to abide in me. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, or if you abide in me and I in you, then uh, you'll bear much fruit. In uh, Galatians 5:16 through 25, it is walking by means of the Spirit that produces the fruit of the Spirit. So abiding and walking are similar. Now, it's very clear. We saw from that passage in Galatians 5.16 where Paul says, Walk by means of the Spirit, and it will be impossible. Double negative, ume in the Greek plus a subjunctive verb is the strongest possible negation indicating impossibility. It will be impossible for you to sin. So what Paul is saying is when you're walking by the Spirit, you can't sin. You have to make a choice to stop walking that then puts you in a position where you can sin. So there's a whether you're fully conscious or fully aware of it or not, at any point, some point you decide not to walk by the Spirit, and at that then you sin. Then the flesh is activated and you're walking according to the sin nature. The only way back into fellowship is through confession of sin. Now the point that Galatians 5 brings to this table is that there's these two opposing absolute realms of what we call fellowship. We're either walking by the Spirit or we're not. There's no in-between. This is the same thing that John is saying in 1 John 3, 1 through 9. 
is the believer who's abiding can't sin. Paul said the believer who's walking can't sin. But we, but both Paul and John recognized that believers sin, and they sin all the time. He had to straighten out the Corinthians because they were engaged in some of the most horrendous sins. And they continued even after 1 Corinthians, and he still had to straighten them out in 2 Corinthians. The same problem had to do with false doctrine with the Galatians, and John's having to deal with the problem of false doctrine in 1 John. So they clearly recognize that believers do sin. But the way, the way John states this, especially as it's translated, and if you take it out of the context of, of the upper room discourse, it sounds as if John is saying that a real believer doesn't sin. Of course, I pointed out last time, and don't ever forget it, that the Bible never qualifies the term belief. It never says genuine belief. Never says true belief. It never talks about a genuine believer. Never talks about a true believer. It always talks about a believer. In the Bible, there's only one kind of believer, and that is someone who is saved. Now, there are people who are losers, failures as believers. They fail in the Christian life. They sin. They don't grow. They don't advance. But they're still saved. They still had. Uh, they were still saved because they put their faith alone in. Uh, Christ alone. Then in terms of this, the, the, the right circle in terms of abiding and walking went on to say that we could describe the boundaries of that circle as our stress busters, our spiritual skills, the ten problem-solving devices, and that the, in order to stay in the middle and wa- abide in Christ and to walk in the light, we have to use these spiritual skills, every time we face a situation, every time we have to make a decision, we use these spiritual skills in order to stay in fellowship. If you don't use the spiritual skills, then the outside pressure of adversity, whether it's a small problem or big problem, that outside pressure of adversity is going to uh, cause you to, you, you will get out of fellowship, you will choose to handle it on your own, and that is tantamount to sin nature control the soul. So what happens is, if you fail to use uh, doctrinal orientation to solve the problem, you fail to use impersonal love, then what happens is you're instantly out of fellowship and you have to use First uh, John 1, 9 in order to get back into fellowship and walk by means of the Spirit. But what enables us to walk by means of the Spirit is applying doctrine. And we boiled those doctrines down into ten basic uh, spiritual skills. Now that's the framework for understanding this entire section. Now let's just review a little bit. Go back to verse 5. John says, And you know that he was manifested, that is Jesus, was manifested. In, in English, you lose the fact that this is the, the same word, phanerao, that we've run into back in verse 28. Verse 28 we read of chapter 2, Now little children abide in him that when he appears. That's phanerao. So you ought, if you're taking notes, you ought to, Circle appears there. That's Fonorao. We may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his, at his coming. And then we have, 
verse 2 of chapter 3. Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not yet been revealed. That's Phanerao again. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, that's Phanerao again, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then in verse 5, and you know that he was manifested, that's Phanerao again. So that's appearing. It is the the idea of when he... When he appears, when he makes his appearance, when he made his appearance at the first advent, John uses that word because he is showing that this is one connected uh, thought through this. You know that when he was manifested, that is the first time, he's drawing a contrast here between the first advent and the second advent. At the first advent, he was manifested to take away our sins. At the second advent, he's going to be revealed And the warning there is, don't be ashamed at his coming. Now, the issue is not whether or not you're going to be saved at his coming. The issue is whether or not you're going to have lived a life of obedience under the filling of the Holy Spirit, abiding in Christ, so that there's fruit and growth and something and rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. If there's no fruit, no growth, you spent your entire life out of fellowship and sinning, then there is shame at the judgment seat of Christ. Only believers are going to be at the judgment seat of Christ. Unbelievers will not be there. They will have their judgment at the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennium. Don't if you if you confuse those two judgments, you end up thinking that the, somehow this has to do with salvation. Because we're not talking about salvation and eternal destiny in heaven, but we're talking about the believer's role in the millennial kingdom and his destiny in terms of, of uh, his inheritance, joint heirship with Christ in the millennial kingdom, we know we must use that framework to interpret everything in chapter 3 and chapter 4, that the issue is believer and the quality of the believer's life, not whether or not they're truly a believer. If you miss that controlling concept, you're going to miss the whole thing. It's just like... If, if we were, got involved in a conversation or I, I was involved with someone else in a conversation and you walked up in the middle of that conversation and from everything you heard up to that point in the first two or three sentences, you made a guess and you said, oh, they're talking about uh, some restaurant that was a good place to eat. And yet, uh, you, you, and then you started interpreting the next two or three sentences in the conversation according to that guess as to what the subject matter is. Then all of a sudden something is said about the fourth or fifth sentence that just doesn't fit at all. So all of a sudden somebody said, yeah, and the sound was really good too. You know, wait a minute, why does sound have to do with the restaurant? Well, that's because you misconceived the subject to begin with. By misconceiving the subject, you interpreted the sentences in light of a wrong subject. All of a sudden, now you hear the next words. Uh, they start talking about sound. Wait a minute. It couldn't be a restaurant. What could they be talking about? Oh, it must be a movie they went to. It must be a new theater or something. So now you're re- you, have to, you realize you had the wrong subject, which led to a false interpretation. So once you understand what the correct subject matter is, then now everything that's said in the conversation makes sense. And the problem is that when you interpret any piece of literature, if you misconstrue the purpose, people do this all the time in elementary school when they're given a test and they they don't read the instructions correctly and they misinterpret the instructions and they start, you know, underlining something instead of circling it or whatever it might be, they, they end up making a poor grade. Now, that's what happens. You misconstrue the subject of 1 John 2.28 to 4.19 
as believer versus unbeliever, you're going to misinterpret these passages. But it's clear that I'm just I'm laboring this point because so many people get confused here, and there's so many difficult verses. No matter which position you take, they're still difficult to interpret. But if you if you misconstrue John's John's theme, then you're go- really going to misconstrue uh, the individual verses. So John's theme here is ta- is abiding. What the believer, what the qu- the quality of the believer's life who is abiding in Christ. So he says, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and that's not just removal of the sin penalty at phase one. This is removal of sin in the life of the believer after salvation. Remember, that's the same point Paul makes in John in Romans chapter six. In Romans chapter six, Paul says that do you not that we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin. He says, he says, don't you know that the one who sins is a slave to sin? But we have been bought with a price. We are now in the body of Christ, and we are to be slaves to righteousness. Jesus Christ saves us so that He can destroy the work of sin in our life. So that's the reference in verse 5. You know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Jesus Christ is is pure. He is righteous. That's in uh, 3.3. He is impeccable. There is no sin in Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 6, whoever abides in him does not sin. Now, if abide in there is belief in Christ, then it would be, be read, whoever believes in him does not sin. That's patently false. That's a contradiction to what John says in 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. There he clearly recognizes that believers sin. Now, I think that um, uh, perhaps I don't have... Um, I don't know if I have... I'm looking at two different English versions up here because I want to make sure that you're trying to correct your translations where I need to. But the New King James Version says, whoever abides in him does not sin. That's a much closer rendering of the original. Uh, New American Standard uh, deals with the negative there in a little different way and says, no one who abides in him sins. It's a clear statement. It doesn't say what kind of sin. It doesn't say no, no one who abides in him commits heinous sexual sin. Yet that's how most people hear it. They think of whatever their worst sins are, and they say, well, if somebody abides in Christ, and they, trans- they want to interpret that as belief, they'll say no one who, ab- who, who abides or believes in him, no one who's a true believer, uh, sins. Well, that includes arrogance. That includes bitterness. That includes resentment. That includes jealousy, uh, as well as all of the overt sins. And yet, we tend to do when we apply this or what some people tend to do is they look at that and say, well, the person who's truly a believer isn't going to commit certain kinds of sin. But it doesn't say that. It says no one who abides in him sins, period. That's the same thing Paul is saying in Galatians 5, that the person who's walking by the Spirit doesn't sin. As long as you're abiding, you don't sin. Then John goes on to say in the second half of that verse, no one who sins has seen him nor known him. And I dealt with that by showing that on the basis of those participles, it has the idea that the person who sins is in a not seeing or not knowing state. At that point, when you're out of fellowship and you're in darkness, 
You're in spiritual darkness. You, the Word of God doctrine is irrelevant. It is if you are blind and ignorant of the Word because you are under the control of the sin nature. And verse 7 says, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. And there I pointed out that there is no word for uh, practice in the Greek. The Greek word for practice is proso. Proso is the word that we find in First First uh, uh, Corinthians chapter six that those who practice certain sins are not going to inherit the kingdom. Uh, that is a key word, and it's important for understanding the loss of rewards at that point. But this isn't the word. We don't have proso here. We have instead the present active participle of poieo, which means the one who does righteousness is righteous. And the second use of the phrase righteous there indicates a a state. So the person who practices righteousness is in a state of righteousness, and once again that is being in that state of walking in the light. Remember, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So when we are walking in the light, there is no darkness, there is no uh, lack of righteousness. We practice righteousness while we are in fellowship because God the Holy Spirit is the one who is producing that righteousness. In contrast to the believer that is walking in the light and practicing righteousness, we have the contrast, he who sins is of the devil. Now, I that's the New King James Version, which is more accurate. Literally in the Greek, it's the one who does sin. So, uh, the New American Standard uses the phrase, practices sin. But once again, the phrase proso is not there. It is the word does, to do. Literally, poieo, the one who does sin. It does. It's not even plural. It doesn't say the one who commits sins or does sins. It says the one who does sin. And that indicates would indicate that a believer who commits a sin is of the devil. Now there's two ways you can take or interpret that phrase of the devil. The one way that both the Lordship crowd who says that you weren't really saved to begin with and the Arminian crowd that says, well, you're losing your salvation, both take the phrase of the devil as meaning that you're not a believer. But if you look at how Paul, and excuse me, how John uses the terminology, how believers can walk in darkness, that, that he warns them that, uh, back in chapter Two, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. Why? Because the world system is Satan's system of operation. It's Satan's thought system. It's Satan's cosmic system. And that he warns them not to love the world because they can love the world. This this sentence, do not love the world, is a meaningless prohibition if they can't actually, if the believer can't actually love the world. See, that's the problem with the, the lordship position is it comes along and it says that the genuine believer, the true believer, can't love the world. That, that, see, the lordship position comes along and says basically the regeneration does something to the believer that is so great and so powerful that it actually uh, diminishes 
the sin nature so that there are sins that you can't commit after salvation that an unbeliever can commit. You won't continue to. It's impossible for the believer to continue those sins. But that's not what the Scripture says anywhere. In fact, if if it's true that the believer is not going to fall away, that the believer can't commit those sins, that the believer is not going to go live like the devil in the world system, then that command, do not love the world, is a meaningless command. I'm I'm making my point here that if I tell you not to do something, the, the prohibition implies that you have the ability and the capacity to do it. If you can't do it, then why should I tell you not to do something? So the command, do not love the world, is just another way, and do not walk in darkness. Those are other ways of saying, don't live in the devil's system. Don't live in darkness, which is the devil's system. And that is equivalent to the phrase here, he who sins is of the devil. Because what's happening is, whenever we sin, we're following the devil in his original sin. The devil's original sin in Isaiah 14, the five I wills, is arrogance. And is at the root, what's at the root of every single sin in the Christian life, or in any, every single sin period, is arrogance. That is the root of every sin. It is doing things our way instead of God's way. That's the essence of what Adam did in disobeying God. The hidden assumption there is that I'm smarter, smarter than God, and God said this really was bad for me, but I can find out, and I'm smart enough to discover that on my own, and I don't need any input from God. So we have to look at the fact that the sin nature is complex. It's motivated by lust patterns. It produces both good. It produces morality. No one in history, no group in history, has ever been as moral and as overtly righteous and religious as the Pharisees. And yet Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, that you won't see the kingdom of God. The the Man on his own, apart from God, can produce morality, but morality is not the same as spiritual virtue that we're talking about, or perfect righteousness, as John is talking about in this this chapter. So you can have a lot of unbelievers, and as an unbeliever without a human spirit, without the Holy Spirit, they can't produce true righteousness, but they can produce a level of morality that may imitate or counterfeit perfect righteousness. The sin nature also produces personal sins, and it produces trends in two opposite uh, areas. The first is towards asceticism and legalism, which leads to moral degeneracy, and the second is in the realm of licentiousness, lasciviousness, and antinomianism, which leads to uh, immoral degeneracy. So when we look at the sins that the sin nature produces, it can produce many good things. It can produce religion. It can produce religious morality and and ritual. And yet that still comes from the sin nature. Yet that's not the kind of thing that most people think of when they read in verse 8, he who sins is of the devil. That means a... A uh, pastor who is teaching a work salvation but is very moral and, of course, is, has a religious job and is a member of a well-respected denomination and believes the Bible is the word of God. If he's teaching works, then he is sinning. That means he's of the devil and he's not saved. But you won't find anybody who will go that far because generally our thinking about sin is very superficial and unrealistic. And we tend to focus on overt sins and horrible sins and sins that shock and offend everybody. And we don't talk about the sins that everybody has that are much more subtle and not quite so obvious. So John says in 1 John 3, 8, the one who does sin 
literally. Singular of sin. It's a singular, it's the accusative singular of sin. So it's the one who does sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. That's his point. He, you are just imitating the devil every time you sin. You're living in the cosmic system. You're out of fellowship. You're walking according to the sin nature. The Son of God appeared. There's that word again. It's phanerao. It's the same word that we have back in verse 5. Here he says, the Son of God was manifested. Let's, for, for consistency's sake, let's use the word appear. The Son of God appeared that he might destroy the works of the devil. Verse 5 it said, he appeared to take away our sins. And you see what the parallel is here. To take away our sins isn't paying the penalty for our sins at the cross. It's taking away the authority of sin in phase two. Remember, phase one, we're freed from the penalty of sin. But in phase two, we're freed from the power of sin. As we study the word and apply it in our lives, we realize in our experience freedom from the tyranny of the sin nature. That's why Jesus says, if you know the truth, that is Bible doctrine, the truth will set you free. It is only on the basis of applying doctrine that we're set free. Free from what? Free from that tyranny of the sin nature. Its ultimate authority is broken at salvation, but we don't realize it in our daily experience until we take the Word of God and apply it to each and every situation in terms of those ten spiritual skills or ten problem-solving devices. So John says, Let no one deceive you. He practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. When we're abiding in him, we have the same. It produces that level of spiritual integrity that can only be produced by the Holy Spirit. This is why it's different from morality. Don't be distracted by the fact that, 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 that there are many moral people and religious people, but that's not righteousness. This, this, we have to maintain something. We're going to see two things in this passage. The emphasis on perfect righteousness and the emphasis on love. And the unbeliever can produce a measure of morality, in some cases incredible morality, morality that makes many believers, uh, that, that makes many believers look like unbelievers but also a love that is distinct. What happens is we want to compare the righteousness, the relative righteousness or morality that an unbeliever can produce and the love that an unbeliever can produce, and we bring that over into Christianity, and that's what we think we're trying to accomplish in the Christian life. And yet what is so clear from these passages is that this righteousness and the love that's mentioned here are radically different from the kind of righteousness and love that the unbeliever can produce in his life. He who sins is of the devil, that is, he's operating according to the devil's system. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God appeared that he might destroy the works of the devil. And that is a potential there. It's a subjunctive uh, mood in the verb indicating the potential in every believer's life to apply the word of God day in and day out to destroy the works of the devil in his own soul in terms of the operation of the sin nature. And then in verse 9 we read, Whoever, I'm going to read from the New King James, whoever has been born of God does not sin. Now the New American Standard states it, no one who is born of God practices sin. 
See, there's that insertion of that word practice in the New American Standard, and yet you don't have that word in the Greek at all. In the Greek, instead, you have the word poieo, which is the word to do. No one who is born of God does sin. Now, that can mean one of two things. You can take that to mean that no one who is born again sins, that believers just don't sin. They can't sin. Well, we've already refuted that error. So since John himself recognizes that these believers do sin back in 1 John 1, 7 and, and, and uh, 1, 8 and 1, 10, it's clear that he means must mean something else. No one who is born of God does sin. Why? Because his seed abides in him. So he, he starts off talking about the the, the believer in the first phrase, but when we get to the second phrase, we're not, we realize he qualifies it as the believer whose seed abides in him. So let's look at it this way. Don't stop in mid-sentence with just being the fact that this is a believer. This is a believer where his seed abides. There are believers where the seed doesn't abide. Now, what is the seed? Some have suggested that the seed is the Holy Spirit. Others suggest it's Jesus Christ. But the, the passage here never never tells us what the seed is. But we do have seed in other passages of the New Testament, and it is the gospel or the word of God. For example, 1 Peter one twenty three states, For you have been... Born again, not of seed, which is imper- which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. In Matthew chapter 13, where you have the parable of the sower, the sower comes along and casts the seed onto the ground, and the seed is defined in context as the word of God. Furthermore, Jesus said in John 15:4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And then in verse 7 he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done unto you. So this gives us a mutual, a twofold direction of abiding. Not only does the believer abide in Christ, but then Christ and His Word abides in the believer. So this happens at the same time. So when we're abiding in Him at the same time, He's abiding in us and His Word's abiding in us. And that means it is being productive because we're walking by the Holy Spirit. When we're out of fellowship, His Word is not abiding in us. We're not abiding in Him and He's not abiding in us. He is indwelling us, but He's not abiding. Remember, this is talking about abiding is a word that emphasizes intimate relationship or fellowship, it indicates that when we're in fellowship with God, there is a mutual abiding that takes place. So when uh, John talks here, he says, "All literally, it is all who are born of God do not do sin. 
all who are born from God do not do sin because his seed abides in him. Well, he's not just talking about a simple believer. He's talking about a believer who is abiding, whose seed abides, and in that state, he cannot sin. Literally, he is not able to sin, and it is the negative ou plus the phrase dunamis, which means not able to and excludes any possibility of being able to sin. And it doesn't qualify the sin. It means, so you, once again, you have two options. Either John is contradicting himself and saying now that the believer can't sin at all, or he is saying something more than that, that the believer in a position of abiding where the word's abiding in him uh, can't sin because he is born from God. He is, and the, the, it's a perfect tense. The last phrase there, he is born, is a perfect Passive indicative, the perfect tense indicating a past action that's completed, and it's emphasizing the present results of that past action. The passive voice indicates that it is God who performs the action of regeneration, not the believer. The believer simply puts his faith alone in Christ alone, and then God, the Holy Spirit, regenerates the believer, according to Titus chapter 3, verse 5. There's one other way to take this that, that is part of this, and that is that John is describing what is true about the abiding believer, and that only the abiding believer can reach a state of not sinning. And I think that's really the same thing that what he is saying, and as I pointed out when we looked at um, verse 29, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. We have that same phrase, is born, the present reality of a past action. And what John is saying there is that only a believer, a born-again believer, can practice righteousness. He is not saying that born-again believers practice righteousness. He is not saying that if you don't practice righteousness, you're not born again. You have to be careful in logic that oftentimes you can make a positive statement and its opposite is that I make a positive statement that's true, but its opposite is not necessarily false. And to make this, so you, you, and that's, but that's an error that is often made by some interpreters of scripture. But it doesn't follow. John is saying that the person who abides, only the person who abides, only the person who is born again, is capable of producing righteousness, and it's only the believer who has his seed abiding in him that is capable of not sinning. He is not stating that if you sin, you weren't ever a believer. He is not stating that believers can't sin. He is stating that only believers have the possibility of being sinless and practicing genuine righteousness, and that only occurs when they are in that status of abiding in in Christ. Now, as I said in the introduction to this several, several weeks ago, is it's important to understand the logical connection of the key terminology here in John, First uh, John two through four, at, at, in the terms of the background in John thirteen through fifteen. In John thirteen through fifteen, Jesus gave a command to the disciples that there was a new commandment to love one another. Then in chapter fourteen, he talks about the coming Holy Spirit. And in John 15, he talks about abiding in Christ. And then in John 16, he comes back to talking about God the Holy Spirit. The point that is made by looking at just this, this thematically 
is that it is the Holy Spirit and abiding in Christ that produce the ability to fulfill the commandment to love one another. Then I went on to connect that again to Galatians 5.14, where Paul says once again that we are to, to love your brother. A quote from Leviticus. It's in Galatians 5.16 that we have the command to walk by the Holy Spirit. And then it is in Galatians 5.21-22 to that we have the fruit of the Spirit, the first of which is love. And then we come down to 5.25 and we're told once again to keep in step there at Storkeo to follow in ranks or march in step with the Holy Spirit. Notice the connection here. You get the same pattern. Love, Holy Spirit, abide, Holy Spirit. Love, walk, love, walk. So that the ability to fulfill the command is through walking by means of the Holy Spirit or abiding in Christ. John follows the same pattern in 1 John. And we have been talking in the first nine verses about what it means to abide in Him, what that looks like, and now we get to the imperative in uh, verse 10 of chapter 3. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. He maintains that contrast. Now, you can see why people get confused. Children of God, children of the devil, sounds like he's contrasting believers versus unbelievers. But that doesn't fit the context as we've seen already. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not, and there we have in the New American Standard the word practice, which shouldn't be there. It's poieo again. Anyone who does not do righteousness is not of God. So now he's going to tell us what he, what he means here, and obviously he's talking about believers and the Christian life. He's not talking about believer versus unbeliever. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now, let's just run back a minute to this for this diagram. Here we have our spiritual skills. We have our basic spiritual skills across the top, confession of sin, filling of the Spirit, and walking by the Spirit, faith, rest, drill, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation. Then we come to the personal sense of our eternal destiny. That's where we begin to learn to live uh, in light of our eternal destiny. This really begins to impact our motivation and the believer's motivation and to, uh, as it were, catapult us into the realm of spiritual maturity, which is represented by the four skills across the bottom, personal love for God, impersonal love for all mankind, occupation with Christ, and sharing God's happiness. Now, to get into full-blown spiritual adulthood, we have to understand what love means. Love is the unique characteristic of the believer versus the unbeliever. And that's why John is going to get it. This is the, this is what is going to characterize, we're not just practicing righteousness, but it's connected with the, the believer who loves his brother. Now let's look at a couple of passages. You don't have to turn there. Some of these are familiar to you. But a couple of passages from the Gospel of John, the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus talks about love in order to provide a background or frame of reference for understanding what John is going to say about love, because love becomes a major theme 
for the rest of this chapter and down through chapter 5, verse 5. Love is chosen because love is designed to represent and to characterize what the mature believer looks like because this isn't going to be produced in the life of the immature believer. He doesn't know enough yet. He doesn't have an intimate enough relationship with God yet. He hasn't grown or matured enough yet. So this is chosen because it represents and characterizes the life of the mature believer. John 13:34 he said, "A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you also love one another." Then in verse 35, he said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, he's not saying, By this all men will know that you are saved. Being a disciple is different from being a believer. A disciple was someone who was a learner, someone who was a student, someone who was implementing all of the teaching of his master. That is different from being a believer. That is why in John chapter 15, he talks about abiding in him. You have to, he says, if you abide in me. Now, they're, they're already believers because in John 15 too, he says, you are already clean. That term katharos there as, as a noun indicates the fact that they're already completely cleansed because they're saved. If, if, if you're automatically gonna abide, if you're automatically gonna love, then why tell them to abide? He recognizes they're already believers, but he says, you're already believers, now you have to do this, and this is addressed to your volition. Maybe you will, and maybe you won't. If you abide, you'll produce love. If you don't abide, you won't produce love. And that's why love becomes the mark of the disciple, the one who is abiding, the one who is advancing and is growing to spiritual maturity, and in John 13:35 we see that this is the unique mark of the disciple of Jesus Christ of the maturing believer. Therefore, the love that we're talking about in John chapter 13 is not the kind of love that probably comes to your mind when you think about love as as a new believer or even as as a a, a growing believer because the frame of reference that we all bring with us into Christianity is a concept of love that is that is culturally tainted and culturally defined, a concept of love that is more often sentimental, a concept of love that is too often conditional, a concept of love that is based on attraction and rapport, and uh, not a concept of love that is based on thinking, not a concept of love that is based on rigorous absolutes, and a concept of love that is based based on a spiritual integrity. See, that's what John is getting at here in this verse when he connects the righteousness, that is the righteousness that is produced by the believer that is tantamount to the righteousness of Christ, so it's a perfect righteousness. He's saying that you can't have this kind of love without the kind of integrity that Christ has. And the application from that is that a love that is not based on the integrity that Christ has is a worthless love. It is a love you can never be sure of in difficult times because it is not a love that is founded on an absolute foundation, but a kind of love that is based on a relative foundation of attractiveness and people doing things and the way we want them to, acting the way we want them to. And as soon as they look different, act different, or speak different, then all of a sudden 
that kind of love disappears. Unbelievers are clearly incapable of producing this kind of love. Now, that does not mean that an unbeliever can, cannot have a love that is at some, has some level of integrity and some level of stability and some level of honor. But this kind of love that is commanded of a believer is a phenomenal kind of love that is, has this kind of absolute stability to it. And I think that we need to spend some time thinking and wrestling with the fact that this is a radically different kind of love than the concept of love that most of us bring to the table when we want to talk about love in the Christian life. That is why people relationships are often the foundation, one of the key tests that God brings our way when we're at that stage of developing a personal sense of our eternal destiny. There are various tests that we face in the Christian life. We have thought testing, we have people testing, we have testing from our sin nature, but the people testing is perhaps the difficult the most difficult, because to handle any kind of people testing, any kind of relationship problem, requires for the believer what we call impersonal love for all mankind. And so we will spend a lot of time over the coming months as we go through chapters 3, 4, and 5 talking about impersonal love and filling in the, the gaps of our understanding of impersonal love. We have basically two kinds of people problems. We have problems with people we know and love, people we like, people who are our friends, people who are family members, people who we have uh, an affinity for. But they often disappoint us. They say things that hurt our feelings. They do things that uh, go against our authority and, and hurt us in some way or another. And so we have two ways of handling that. We can either handle it through impersonal love, which means that it, their negative behavior does not affect our mentality at all. Now, that's difficult. We can only do that if we're in fellowship. Because the emphasis in impersonal love is that, that my love and my feelings and, and, and my attraction for you have absolutely nothing to do with you. Nothing to do with the object of love. Whether you're ugly, whether you're beautiful, whether you're obedient, whether you're disobedient, whether you hate me, whether you like me, it's irrelevant because my mental attitude toward you, which we're going to develop in the coming weeks, just exactly what the characteristics of that are, is completely detached from you and your behavior and what you do. And, and those of you who are married, if that's not at the core of your marriage relationship, then something can come along and destroy that marriage relationship eventually because your spouse at some time can do something that is going to uh, disappoint you, do something that will hurt you, continuously do something that causes you to harbor uh, resentment or bitterness. And then, like, I had some friends that uh, a year ago I found out were separated, and uh, when, when you asked the wife what the problems were, they were problems that occurred in the first year of marriage 28 years ago. And, you know, without doctrine, you don't understand how to... Uh, let that go. And you have to understand how to let it go. See, there's two ways to let it go. There's the, the human viewpoint way, which the unbeliever can do, and that is just to ignore it or suppress it or use some other uh, human viewpoint problem-solving device that, that causes you ultimately to be a hypocrite. 
See, when you forgive someone, that, that term forgive is, is a word that is often used in, in, in debt relationships. It's an economic term. So that if, if uh, you owe me $1,000 and we've written out an IOU and, and formalized it and made it a legal document, and then you come back to me a year later and I say, okay, well, you can't pay the debt, I'm going to forgive the debt. And that means I'm going to take that IOU and I'm going to rip it to shreds and then a year later, I'm hit hard times, and I'm uh, and I don't have any money or any income. If I come to you and say, "Well, where's that thousand dollars you owe me?" I didn't forgive the debt, did I? To forgive the debt means that it is no longer of consequence. It's no longer entertained in my thinking at all, and no longer governs or affects the decisions I make regarding our relationship. Now, that's a radical concept because we think that if somebody has mistreated me, I better take that into account in terms of uh, future relationships. Otherwise, I'm fairly naive and I'm just going to get hurt again. Well, I want you to take that concept and apply that to the love Christ demonstrated on the cross. That's not the way he handles our sin. Our sin he does not take into account again, putting himself in a position where he is what? Vulnerable again to being disappointed and and offended and 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 hurt again in, a, in a, using that in an anthropopathic concept. So we have to come to grips with what it means to love somebody and to truly forgive that debt, and that is something that can only come as a result of maturity and growth. If we take it in terms of an absolute that every believer is going to do that, and if he doesn't do it at all, he's not a believer. That's the kind of thing that the that, that the the lordship or the Arme, even the Arminian uh, interpretation of this verse leads to, and that is completely divorced from reality and doesn't take into account the fact that we all fail, we all sin, and God has not removed the sin nature from us at the point of salvation. That is why John reinforces this in verse 11 by saying. This is the message that you heard from the beginning. From the beginning there is the beginning of Jesus' teaching, the beginning of the church age, going back to the uh, upper room discourse, not from the beginning of time, not from the beginning of the Old Testament. Remember, in the Old Testament, the command was love your, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, love your brother as I have loved you. Now, there's a big difference between those two, and we've studied them, that the Old Testament concept was, the, the analogy was as yourself, and it was directed towards your neighbor who is anybody. But the dynamic here in the command here is to love your brother, that is, other believers, and not like you love yourself, but as Christ loved them. So it grounds that mandate in an absolute uh, concept as displayed by Jesus Christ on the cross. We can't. There's no wiggle room when Jesus is the model. So this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. And then we have a negative illustration in verse 12. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. See, murder is the ultimate result of mental attitude sins of resentment, hatred, uh, revenge, motivation, and that is just the opposite of love. So John uses this extreme example because it is the product, murder is the product of, of the act of not loving. So Cain is focused on himself. See, the difference is, is if you're self-absorbed, 
If you're oriented to what's going on in your life, then you can't ever love anyone. And that's true of the kind of love that every unbeliever has is a pseudo-love that's based ultimately on arrogance and on self-gratification. It can't be otherwise for the unbeliever because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit to produce this kind of love. That means no matter how wonderful that unbeliever is, no matter how much establishment doctrine is in his soul, no matter how moral he is, ultimately what undergirds his concept of love is self-gratification and self-absorption. And that can never work when the real pressure's on. That is always going to collapse and implode on the unbeliever. That is why, we, as believers, we have to learn the difference between the kind of love that we think of that is informed by a human viewpoint concept of love that any unbeliever can have and this radical love that can only be produced in a believer that is produced by the Holy Spirit as a result of walking by the Spirit and is the unique mark or characteristic of the believer distinguishing him from either the carnal believer or the unbeliever. Remember, Jesus says it's the mark of the disciple, not the mark of just any believer, but the mark of the disciple. So Cain is just the opposite because he is he was unrighteous. That's the point of the last phrase. Why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Because he did not have integrity, because he was not a believer, he could not produce the kind, any kind of love that would provide any kind of stability. We'll stop there. We'll come back and wrap up uh, verse 12 again in a summary fashion next time before we go on to discuss the rest of this section with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time together. The challenge that is thrown before us of what it means to love one another as Christ loved us. Pray that the Holy Spirit would bring these things back to our minds, that we might uh, reflect and and uh, think about these things, that the Holy Spirit might uh, make it clear to us how we are to apply them in our own spiritual life. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would make take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, you have the opportunity to determine your eternal destiny. All you have to do is accept the free gift that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. Scripture says the issue is not works, it's faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we just commit this time to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.